Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 63 with Angela Damiani. And um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. If you're new to the show, welcome. Uh, you can subscribe on iTunes. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And at osherginsberg.com, you can see all of the episodes that I've ever done because they all don't show up on iTunes, but you can uh, see all the episodes I've ever done in full, in full length. That's important because I'm going to tell you why in a second. Uh, and you can also subscribe to my mailing list where I'll let you know about what's going on this week and uh, what's going on uh, with the show and uh, exciting newsy news things. Um, so speaking of exciting, huge newsy news things, if you are in Australia, um, which most of you are, not all of you, but most of you, solid 80% of my listeners are in Australia, you can hear... Episodes of this show, cut down half-hour versions of this show on ABC Radio from Monday night, the 8th of December. There's going to be a two-week run, which is going to be pretty amazing. Um, the team there have handpicked a couple of uh, highlighted episodes from the past year and a half or so of shows, and you can hear them if you're in Sydney. They're on 702 Canberra 666, the most metal of all AM stations in the country. Melbourne is 774, 720 in Perth, 774 in Adelaide, and 612 in Brisbane, and 55 other stations around Australia. Yes, my friends, I've entered the ABC years. That's right. There's grey in my beard, and I'm on the ABC. There you have it. I'm happy about it. Wonderful stuff. So here's the present that I would ask of you. Uh, for Instead of Christmas, instead of Hanukkah, instead of whatever you were going to, you know, for me... Uh, as a reward, as a thank you for for listening to just please, what you can do for me is you can tweet or write a letter or let the ABC know that you've enjoyed hearing my shows on their radio or just, just tell someone, tell anyone to listen. Like say, for example, if you were to listen in Sydney on 702, the Twitter handle is at 702 Sydney and just write, hey, you know, I'm listening to Shane Jenick, who's the kickoff episode on Monday night um, on 702 Sydney. It's rad. This should be more regular. Yes, I'm campaigning. Um, 
So that would be amazing if you could do that. That would be a, a huge hit for me. And um, look, I hope you enjoy it. I certainly hope it helps bring the show out to a wider audience. And all of that happened because of the show. I had Dom Knight on this show. It's kind of interesting because I had his brother Jasper Knight in my house not two hours ago here in Venice in California. Um, Dom Knight was on the show and he got me in touch with uh, the, the team at the ABC. I went there and had a meeting and one came to the other. And if that's not a proof in the pudding that work begets work, I don't know what is. That's exactly how it happened. So if you're listening to this and you're, I don't know, say, for example, wondering how to get into media or a media student or just basically wondering how to push your own thing forward, it's in doing it for free. I'm doing this for free. And as you no doubt know, if you follow the news in Australia, it's not like the ABC have a lot of money to pay me. Um, I'm just really grateful to be acknowledged with broadcast on on their uh on their network it's just it's super huge i'm super excited you can probably tell uh but um that'd be the best thing you could do ever for me is to just tweet the abc let them know you're listening and it's on every night monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday so two weeks in a row uh the shows are going to be on and i'm super stoked because i think finally my dad will listen to it because he doesn't know how to use a computer or an ipod so finally my dad's going to hear the show which is going to be amazing so I'm pretty thrilled about that. And my mum as well. So that's that's tops. Just to quickly um, check in on the other side of that, um, <laughs> I hope I don't bum you out. Um, I know a lot of people listen to this show and I talk about what's going on with my brain and the brain I was born with and what it's like to live with a mental illness. Um, I... It's New Meds Week. Ooh, 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 ooh. It's New Meds Week. So if you've never been on on meds for uh, uh, something that happens between your ears that isn't a headache pill, um, they don't ha- it, it doesn't work as fast as a Panadol, all right? So say you've got a headache and you take a Panadol, you're going to expect like within about 40 minutes, you'll expect a change coming over. So when you're on things like antidepressants and stuff like that, they sometimes take days, sometimes weeks to kick in. And in the interim, things just feel weird. So I'm in that weird feeling. I kind of wanted to wait till Arias was out of the way. And so I'm shifting things up and, you know, it's all, it's all a part of the, the grand scheme of things because look at the end of the day, we as human beings, happiness is part of the human condition being happy is a part of the human condition and um i've been struggling to feel that way and i know that it's a, a medical thing nothing else um but the problem is that because i'm in a condition where i can't see that that is a possibility i can't see that that's a possibility so i kind of have to trust my doctors when they go no no no, it's going to be fine you're going to be all right part of me wants to go you don't understand I go, no 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 it's going to be fine but I'll report back, you know, I mean, I, I let you know what's going on in my life quite, quite openly and honestly. And I've just had to come to trust that my view of how it might work out might not be the actual way it's going to work out, which is kind of weird, but it's pretty good because I'd rather it not work out the thing I, the way I think it's going to work out. So let me tell you about my guest today. She's one of my favorite people in the world. Yes, she is. Her name is Angela Damiani. She lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and she calls herself a social architect. Angela is the president of a very interesting organization called Newwaukee. See what they did there? Um, 
And what they do at Newwalkie is they create and curate community events within Milwaukee to make it a more awesome place to live. Now, you know Milwaukee, Happy Days, Milwaukee, uh, Laverne and Shirley, Milwaukee, Van Halen, Milwaukee. It's a formerly, as she puts it, the machine shop of North America. It was heavy industry, uh, all the manufacturing, all the machinery, all the electric, everything came out of Milwaukee. And then all those factories and everything shuttered and everything then went to South America, Latin America, and then, then everything went to China and Asia. And so people just left and that's no good for a city. And so what Newwalkie tries to do is make Milwaukee a more livable, more wonderful city so young people stay and engage and create the community. And I've been to some of her events and they're super, super fun. They just transform parts of the city. Now, I don't know if this is their particular project, but this is something they, that absolutely happened in Milwaukee. And this one kind of really describes the kind of things they do. There was this pedestrian uh, walkway that passed through an underpass, like as an underpass, right? So like there's a, a road that goes on top and there's an underpass and it's kind of shadowy and dark. And there was a pedestrian walkway to get to a school, but no one was using the walkway because like drug dealers and shady types and stuff like that would hide underneath this, this walkway. Uh, underneath the overpass and the walkway became like we don't want to go anywhere near it so one night in the middle of the night someone turned up with about 500 bucks worth of wood and chain and rubber from the hardware shop and underneath this bridge they hung swings but they didn't just hang any swings they swung they hung swings that was so big it took two maybe three people to swing on them so before you know it there's these drug dealers and stuff standing around and there's these swings everywhere and people are walking by going, I want to swing on those swings. Now, what happens when there's happiness and joy and people swinging on swings? Grown-ups, there's a grown-up size swings, people swinging on swings. Within days, the shady types had disappeared and this had become this amazing new area. They had transformed this particularly shady part of town into something, wow, look, there's swings. And things like that is what makes what she's doing so great. Like I said, I don't know if they did that project, but they certainly do things exactly like that. And it's really, really interesting. I did go to New uh, to Milwaukee to give a talk as, as invitation of Milwaukee. They did invite me there, but I have known Angela for some time. Um, and I left my podcasting stuff back in LA. So what happened is I didn't get a chance to shoot a photo of her with my uh, Polaroid, which I normally shoot people with. So this is the first episode where there is no Polaroid photo of my guest, but there is a photo of Angela. So that's why there's a different photo. She Look, she's a super inspiring woman. I'm really glad to know her. She's full of wisdom. Enjoy this. Oh, you can find her on Twitter. She's at Angela underscore M-K-E, M-K-E, Milwaukee, at Angela underscore M-K-E. If you hear something you enjoy, let her know. All right, let's do this. Let's go and sit in Angela's kitchen for a bit, shall we? So uh, it's weird. I normally have mic stands, but because um, I left the stuff in LA, I had to go get new stuff. That's all right. So now I have the SM58. You're holding the, um, this is like the 350 Chevy of microphones. That means it's really good? Well, yeah. Well, it's like the, it's like the industry standard oh. vocal mic. It's uh, well, I appreciate you getting new equipment for me. Do you need to get a warmer jumper, sweetheart? I actually just took got the heat on to and put my house slippers on already now. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, you have. <laughs> um, hi, Angela. 
Hi. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm grateful to be in your kitchen here in beautiful Milwaukee. Oh, I'm happy it's sunny today for you. You brought the like sunshine with you from LA. Uh, yes, I did, because I believe it has been um, Arctic here. You know, it snowed on Monday and yeah. it's, it was April 14th. So it has been a tundra that we can't seem to shake. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been pretty interesting from what I gather. It's always tricky when you're trying to talk about climate change with people and they go, well, it's still snowing. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's a part of it, right? Yeah. There's absolutely no reason why it should be snowing in April. No. The weather gets a bit. I think because they called it global warming, yeah. people like to use that excuse. Like that doesn't necessarily mean just because the globe is getting warmer, that doesn't mean that all places are warming up. It means that the you know climate is going to be a branding er erratic. Issue. Yeah, it's it is a branding issue. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of interesting. Now, I'm, uh, I'm really happy to speak to you today because uh, I'm really excited about not only what you're doing here on Milwaukee, but also how you came to do what you do in Milwaukee. And I think that story is very interesting to share with people. Oh, I hope so. Oh, it is. Don't worry. I really do. You know, I listen to your show all the time and I feel just nervous. Like I'm not the same caliber of other guests. I disagree. I uh, walk around with a portable recorder talking to people. You change the very face of the city. <laughs> <laughs> you have far more power than I think you're willing to give yourself credit for. Uh, now, I would have already had a bit of a chat about what you do and, and why you do it at the start, but could you give your uh, description of what uh, Newwalkie is? Certainly. So Newwalkie is a social architecture firm based here in Milwaukee. And social architecture is the conscious design of an environment that shifts the social behaviors of that population towards a certain goal or set of goals. And the way that we translate that here is that we help empower the people of Milwaukee to have access to everything the city has to offer, to realize its potential, and then to make it more awesome. With our end goal being that we want people to stay in the city and be proactive proactively involved in the like creation of what the place is. So the city has changed a lot in the last 15 years, hasn't it? Certainly. I would say it's changed a lot since the 1970s. You know, we lost huge um, swaths of our industrial fabric. We were the machine shop of the world in the 1880s and well into the um, 20th century. And then suddenly... Like big, heavy industry, steel pressing, that kind of thing. Yeah, and tanneries and breweries and all of that. And as all of those sort of things migrated to Latin America and then over to Asia, the city lost its identity and for many years struggled with what it was going to be. Um, and then something shifted slowly, slowly. I think the people here have reawakened to its potential. Um, I always like to think of the city as unfinished. And there's a certain um, vulnerability in that. It's not, it doesn't have the same like mm, economic power or even like attractiveness that densities or places where there are like higher population of like extreme talent or extreme economic development. You know, you go to think about New York, New York begets success because successful people go there. So it compounds itself. We don't have that quite yet, but there has been this new galvanization. And I think specifically because there's been a void, you know, there's a vacuum and then, you know, a good restaurant can come in and suddenly there's a, like a need for another one right across the street from it. And then that breeds a whole new neighborhood. These sort of things have been happening in the last 15 years um, in a way that makes it feel like there is um, 
I don't know, motion. There's a, there's a pulse to this place that is undeniable. It is interesting in that um, it's only what, a 90 minute drive from one of the greatest cities on the planet, Chicago. Yeah, well, I would say that this is the greatest city on the planet, but I agree. It is, it is only, yeah, we're, you know, in a lot of ways, a bedroom community for Chicago. There are plenty of people that get on the Amtrak every morning and go down and go to work there. Um, a bedroom community. So they work in Chicago, but sleep here. Right, exactly. Uh -huh. So, you know, we, we act in some ways as a suburb, a very, very large suburb of Chicago. Um, I actually went down to um, hear a speech this summer from their Chamber of Commerce. It was this really fascinating thing because Milwaukee and Chicago were founded at nearly at the exact same time with the same sort of principles. Um, they were both on the uh, lake and that gave them access because of the rivers and the channels to the East Coast. And so they were distribution points. And then there was a, there was a moment in time when an investment in rail went into Chicago. And so Chicago and Milwaukee were growing at the same rate. And then suddenly there was this exponential growth with Chicago, but the like fabric of the communities are very similar. And so are their problems with segregation and, and things like that. And so I had this moment of like extreme relief, like, Oh, someplace else has the same problems we have. And then, um, like a sense of excitement because they're seven times our size. And it was like, well, at least we have the same problems, but like ours are manageable. Yeah. <laughs> we could, maybe there's a chance that we'll be able to like fix them because the size of the city here with only 1 million people is, I don't know, small. It's, well, that's the thing that kind of really fascinates me about what you're doing at, at Milwaukee. And I think I first saw uh, what you were doing about a year ago um, when I came here and you know, you were explaining to me that, you know, oh, we're, we're changing this and changing that and doing this and doing that. And you were doing so many things. And it, it would just, what puzzled me is that it just, it never occurred that to me that you could so actively change the city that you live in. You know, it seems that certainly where I grew up in Brisbane and then in Sydney and that's definitely in Los Angeles, like that is how it is. That's how it's going to be. And it's far too hard to change anything. So we just live with it, but it doesn't seem to be the case here. So I would say most people believe that no matter where they are. People don't like to believe in change. I don't think people realize how Im impermanent everything is all the time. They sort of go to their job that has a steady income and they own their house and they build all of this equity in their life thinking that like it's somehow formidable or constant. Um, and we definitely have that here. There's a large contingency of people that are very satisfied with how things are. There's a joke that um, if we had been on um, Lake Superior instead of Lake Michigan, we would have just called it like just an okay lake rather than a great lake. Like just like that's just sort of the mentality of the people here in a lot of ways. But I would say for those that have the inclination to move, Milwaukee has a distinct advantage because of its size. 1 million people is not that many people. It means that you and I can be walking from lunch just a few moments ago and have a face-to-face -face interaction with our local alderman. And he can say, oh, hi, Angela. It's nice to see you. I'll see you Monday at the zoning of neighborhood development meeting. And it's, it's, an, it's a no thing. It's very easy for that to happen. 
And that's, that's really interesting. I, I've always lived, except for the time that I lived in Adelaide, which is about the same size as Milwaukee. And I find the two cities very similar, which is why I think I'm quite fascinated with Milwaukee. Uh, is that what's what I remember about being in Adelaide? There was, you weren't so lost in the seething mass of humanity, like I am in Los Angeles, where there's 18, 20 million people, or in Sydney, where there's you know, five or six million people, that you actually, exactly what you're saying, you feel. Like, oh, a bit of familiarity. You don't recognize all the faces, but you're like, oh, that's, that's kind of see these kind of people in this place and this, and that elements of society are kind of equally represented in the metropolis and you're able to kind of see all the different sort of races and classes a bit more than you would in a, in a massive, massive town. Yeah, I think the size provides access. I think the, um, like I said, the void of activity for a long time allows for sort of a willingness to, well, I guess we may as well, you know what I mean? at least that's that's been the reception from our local government and a lot of our um, officials when we've sort of like come into a, a room with a, a boundless amount of energy like oh we have an idea let's do it and people have been like okay why not uh-huh. which has been really helpful for us to at least with our leadership be able to like gain their approval yeah. to you know change vacant lots into public parks or hang swings underneath bridges. Yeah, I want, I want to talk about that, that's for sure. But Newaukee's not just you. You're the president of Newaukee, but it's, uh, it's three of you, right? There are three of us. Yeah. But actually, um, Newaukee started in 2009 by my partner, Ian. We look at a joke. It's because he had no friends. <laughs> he had um, he has this extreme issue with FOMO just in general, but actually I feel quite grateful for it because I don't think I would be where I am now had he not moved to the city and realized he didn't know anyone. And there was no outlet for people to meet one another in a social capacity. And he worked for a nonprofit with a bunch of people who were twice his age and went home to their suburbs and their families at night. And so he had, didn't have much connection. And so he gathered about 10 people that he knew into the basement of this bar and said, I want to start getting together every two weeks and we'll go to a different place. And you need to bring other people, you know, because <laughs> if I like you, you probably have someone else in your life that I like as well. And so we'll build this network. And in five years time, eventually I actually attended one of these like gatherings about two weeks after I moved here. Um, and shortly after that, we met Jeremy as well. But um, those original 10 people, have grown in the last five years to 166,000 people. <laughs> and so it's, it is the three of us. And um, in a lot of ways, I feel grateful f for how often we are represented, but it, it isn't just the three of us. I mean, we have a small staff and we have hundreds of volunteers that help us actualize all of our <laughs> crazy dreams or, or their own crazy dreams because people come to us all the time like, can we do this? And we say, um, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> but you have to be the one who leads the charge. And so I think that's been part of our success too, is this sort of openness and willingness to say like, if you have a great idea, that's awesome. We'll help equip you with the tools you need or the connections you need to make it happen. But you're going to have to actually have to like roll up your sleeves and do it alongside us. And so there's been no need for us to advertise in any way, there's been this really like natural sense of belonging and purpose that comes when you're like sweating and hauling stuff next to other people that are also trying to make this city better. That's nearly a fifth of the population. Yes, that's weird. <laughs> that's, that's quite a that's quite a movement. Yeah, it is. It is actually. I don't. I don't like to think about it that much because it the responsibility of that 
is actually quite daunting, you know, in a lot of ways we're a media outlet and that's not what we intended to be. I think we have to be very cognizant of that. We have to be very careful with the power of that. Um, but I also feel excited about what that means because we can then reshape how we talk about ourselves and what it is that we focus on and how we garner, you know, global recognition for what's happening here. It's it, which is an interesting, you know, cause I never really thought about, you know, I got to 40 years old, never really thought about how I could affect the city that I live in. I never really felt that I had a say. I never really felt that I could, you know, alter it. And that sort of thing was for people who wanted to shout about a park getting torn down or, or mm-hmm. something like that. And, and, and not me, but, it's interesting in the way that you do it. It seems to always be revolved around like a social event or, or trying to make the city, for want of a better word, more livable mm-hmm. so people would want to stay. Because that, if I'm not mistaken, that was a problem. People were leaving. Oh, it's still a problem. Um, we're actually an enormous college town. We have about 100,000 students come through our city every year with all of the local universities, and we only keep about 20% of them. Um, and it's this daunting issue. You know, we have world-class institutions. People come from around the region to be educated here. And then they, they take what they've learned and rather than invest it here locally, they go to one of the coasts or to Chicago, other places. And so, um, it's something that is a severe issue when you talk about where we're going as a city and how we're going to maintain our population with their population getting older and, and, you know, we actually have one of the highest per capita um, densities for corporations, Fortune 100 corporations, and they need people to work there. You know, we, we like to talk a lot about startups and whatnot, and, and we do have an amazing startup community here, people creating new jobs out of thin air. But we also have enormous powerhouse agencies that need talent to run them because they export goods and services to the globe. Um and if we don't have the ability to retain that talent, we can't move forward as a community. So how does, what are you, you're 28? <laughs> yes, I'm 28. <laughs> how does a, a, a smart, powerful, beautiful 28-year-old come to rise to be the president of this city-changing organization? Um, like, I'm, I'm kind of interested. I'm guessing there's no university degree in this. Where did you... Uh, you know, know stories, what did you call it at the start? Social, social architecture. Social, yeah, I'm social. guessing there's no university degree in social Not architecture. Quite yet. Hopefully soon. Right. So yeah. where, how did you come to be in this place where you could do this stuff? That's a weird story. Um, We've got time. Yeah, that is a weird <laughs> story. I wish, I wish I had said I was listening. So I'll just say for the audience sake, Osher came to a, the, one of our largest programs this week called YP Week and he was a speaker for us, which we were really grateful for. And he told this beautiful story about how he has a vision and then he would actualize it. And I, I wish I could say like, I wanted to be a social architect. And so then I like galvanized all these people around me and that's not at all the case. Um, I grew up on the West coast and my family was originally from here. They actually, most of my family lives within like a two mile radius of me now. Um, and we moved to Milwaukee when I was 13 but I never really fit in. I mean, I think about it now. I always felt a disconnect from the culture here um, throughout high school. It was never an option for me to stay. I never absolutely had no interest in, in this place. And so I went to school in Minnesota and I wanted to be a journalist. And I was like in a, sitting in a, a JCOM 101 class and decided, oh, this is a dying industry. Well, 
maybe this isn't like the best for me, but I really love to write. So I'll just, rather than like divert into something really drastic, I'll just like go across the hallway and take PR instead, which I thought was like a safer bet. And, um, and then I had a really brilliant internship with Honeywell, um, which is like enormous corporation and they had offered me a job and I thought, all right, this is awesome. So I'm going to, um, take this. And my, uh, very serious boyfriend at the time knew that the market was going to crash and he had been convincing me that we should save, we should save money and we'll buy a house when everything falls apart. So I was really like on board with that. Like, this is what's going to happen. I have my whole, the rest of my life planned at 22, whatever. Um, and then I balked, like I just, I did, I completely balked and I left him and I finished school on a Saturday and on a Monday I bought a ticket to go to Italy and I thought I was going to go for just six weeks to kind of like, I don't know, to breathe. After school, I was a straight A student, you know, top of my class and I needed a moment to just kind of, I had studied abroad in Italy and I wanted to go back and just kind of like chill off for a moment. And I landed and I, I remember like I was scrambling to find like one of those prepaid cards to use the payphone in the airport because I wanted to call my mother. And I said, um, I'm not going to come back. And she was like, I, what are you talking about? And I said, yeah, I'm just, I'm not, I'm sorry. I don't know what that means. You got off the plane. I got off the plane and I said, I just, I'm going to stay until I'm done staying. And she obviously had a complete shit fit about that's, that. That's really interesting. Yeah. That you knew within, was it on the plane ride? On the plane, I was, we had, Florence is kind of in a valley and we had come down, we were ascending into the valley and I saw the Duomo right at sunset when we were landing. And I had this moment where like my, my heart like jumped up into my throat and I thought, yeah, no, this is what I'm going to do for a little while. I don't have a plan. And that was really, really scary for me because I had everything laid out. Like we were going to buy a house in Golden Valley, Minnesota. This was like the whole thing was premeditated. And then I, the last minute. You're going to get married. There was going to be kids. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go and work at this place. Like, and... nope. Yeah, no, I'm not going to do any of those things. And so I sort of like hung out. I got a job teaching English for a little bit. And then I was starting after a couple months to feel like kind of guilty, like, oh, I just got this degree and I like got straight A's. What was the point of that if I'm not going to actually like use it? And so I found this agency called the International Press Services, um, which sent teams of journalists out to a country to gather a story and actually sell that story. So they sold all the ads that would be in there. And then they sold the whole package to something like Time or Newsweek or Fortune. So they bought the pages and then there would be like a little margin there. That's how the agency was funded. And so I did two stories in Greece back to back right before it crashed. Actually, when I think about it, it was quite ridiculous. I wrote a story called Blue Skies on Greek Horizons in like August of 09, mm-hmm. like right before the regime change action and the whole thing fell to shit. Um, and then I was home on holiday, um, that August and, um, my brother was really sick and my mom was exhausted and I just had this like sense about it. Like I shouldn't leave. I had my next assignment. I was going to be in Lisbon. Um, and I was quite excited about going back to Portugal and taking another project on. Um, but I knew that um, if I was on a project, I wasn't going to be able to leave and things were really tentative with my brother. And so I thought I should just stay 
I could pick up another project in like six months. It was a really flexible. I think I was like technically a contract worker for that. So it wasn't going to be that big of a deal. And so I, this was like the fall of 09 and everyone was like, oh, you're never going to get a job. You're never going to get a job. Things are really shitty now. So I got like this really shit sales job. Um, and I thought, well, this will do. Like I have an, like a little crappy income and I can do sales. That's fine. Um, and then, yeah, like two weeks into that, I said, I'm going to stay. I got this job. Somebody said, oh, you're new to the city. Um, you should go to this thing, Milwaukee. um and so I did yeah I I remember the night I went I was so exhausted and I definitely did not want to go I distinctly remember thinking like oh there's one of these in two weeks like do I have to go tonight but I had this like pull like no you absolutely have to go you have to go tonight and it was at this really really like scary bar um in kind of like a hipster neighborhood in town and I met my partner, Ian, and there was like, I don't know, it was like one of those love at first sight things. Like there was a halo around him. He, I mean, he can, he can work a room like no one's business. He is absolutely mesmerizing when he's on, he's on. He has like, just, it's intoxicating. And I, he and I connected instantaneously. And in a lot of ways, like the rest was history. Like we spent every single minute together after that. It was like, I remember it was like, we had never been apart. Suddenly it was like this person that I was supposed to know. And so, sorry, this is sort of meandering, but getting back on it. um, At that point, this was just sort of a hobby for him. It had been around for six months and they had like kind of skipped to and fro around the city. Um, And I am quite like... I can organize things very well. And so we had this like interesting interplay where we were sort of like consulting on each other's projects. And I, I decided to quit that sales job really quickly because it was awful. And I knew I wanted to work for myself. Um, and so I had like a little PR shop. I had like three or four little clients, but it was enough to like make a living. It's incredibly reasonable to live in the city. So you don't have to work that hard in order to like sustain yourself. And we had been like kind of like playing with each other's things at that point. We had met Jeremy too. And um and then I don't know what happened. Like it just it kept getting bigger. Like every week there would just be more and more people. And then people would come to us and be like, maybe we should go ice skating, or maybe we should like do something uh underneath this bridge, or maybe we should and it was like, all right, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And it, it kind of like got away from us. Like suddenly we were, I was no longer servicing my like three or four little clients and he was spending, um, Jeremy was too, you know, every minute we were at like our desk jobs, actually working on this passion project of ours. And then about, um, in the August of 2011, I don't know how we did it but we somehow convinced the state to let us use this state park for a night. And it was going to just be like a networking thing. Like we had like one, one little singer songwriter with like one little amp. And I think we had like a car full of like cases of beer. We were like, this is awesome. The state said we could like hang out on this Island for the night. Maybe there'd be like 200 people that show up. Actually, when I think about it, it makes me like incredibly anxious because we had no liability insurance. There was like no bathrooms in place because like 3,000 people came. 
<laughs> it was like absolutely, absolutely insane. And um, I remember we were like cleaning up after because we had no infrastructure or support at that point. It was like the three of us picking up the trash after this festival had sort of like unexpectedly occurred. Um, and I said to them, like, I can't do this anymore. Like, we can't be throwing festivals on the side of our regular job. If we don't get serious about this, like, we need to stop. And so we did. We all, like, quit our jobs and tried to figure out how do you have a revenue model for free community-based programming with a free membership? And... Um, yeah, I don't know. That's 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 how I became president. Is I was the one that was like, "We're all quitting our jobs now. Let's do this." That's so. So there's a few things that are really uh, I'm finding very interesting. So I want to talk about that three thousand people night, the night of three thousand people. But I just want to rewind just a, a minute, just to take you back to when you're sitting on the plane, descending down into Italy, deciding that you weren't going to come back. Mm-hmm. Um. Because we've talked on this show a lot about about quitting, and when quitting is good, and when quitting is important. When you look at that, did you feel? And when you talk, you talked about having it all planned and having everything like buttoned down. Were you afraid to quit? And what was the thing that made you go, "I'm actually, you know, I'm more afraid what happens if I don't quit." Like, what what was the I just want you to just kind of take us through your thought process around that because I think a lot of people get stuck. A lot of people don't want to be where they are, but they're too afraid to, to go and, and pull a pin. I think it was the first time I don't, so I wasn't afraid. I, that was, I remember that really distinctly that I, I had no plan and I had like repeated calls with my folks. They were like, this doesn't make any sense. Like go to Honeywell, do the thing that you, said you were going to do. And I just had this like urge, like, I can't, I just can't, I can't do that. And I don't have any like reasonable explanation for it. And I'm sorry that this is like disappointing. You know what I mean? Cause I was like this like rising star. And then at the last minute it was like, I just like walked away from the game entirely. But it was the first time I think I've ever really been aware of something that I like I focus on a lot and that is that I put my happiness first, always. Like the moment that I find myself lament about something more than twice, I make a shift. And I don't know, I think about that moment in the plane because it was like, yeah, I'm not gonna just complain about how like sad I am that I broke up with my boyfriend or that like none of those dreams are gonna actualize now. I'm gonna just like make a new dream. And I have like, when I think about the rest of my life, even still, like when we have clients, we have projects that I don't like, it's very easy for me to be like, yeah, no, I'm not having fun. So we're not going to do this anymore. And I, I don't know, it's something I guess I've just always prioritized is, and I have been like, when it comes to my family too, I have been criticized for that. Like, oh, you're so selfish. You put yourself first. And it's something that I like really pains me. It's hard for me to like describe that if I'm not whole, I can't be anything to you. I can't function. And I have to like put like piecing together my wholeness first. It's interesting. They teach that in first aid classes. You know, if you're going to help someone, the first thing you've got to do is make sure that it's safe to help someone. Right. Even like on the plane, right? You're supposed to put your own gas mask on first and then help your neighbor. Yeah. 
And yet that doesn't really like, it's very, the, the normal thing to do is say, no, you have to suffer. You have to suffer a painful 40 year career. And then, you know what I mean? Like, hopefully you won't be ailing at the end of it and you can actually enjoy your retirement. And I just, I guess I've never subscribed to that. Like I'd rather just enjoy this moment, right? This minute. That seems to be working out for you. I mean, it does, it does, it does, but it doesn't mean that there isn't like pain or yeah. there isn't, it's, things aren't hard. I think that's what people like sort of assume is like, because I could be sort of flippant about prioritizing my satisfaction. Um, that it, not every moment is like roses. You know what I mean? It's, it's hard to put that first. It's hard to say, yeah, this is uncomfortable and I don't, I'm not going to continue this relationship anymore. I'm sorry. And then people get hurt. People take it personally a lot, but it's always for, I mean, the greater good, right? Cause I want to, I want to shift things and I know my own capacity really, I'm very self-aware in that way. I like the idea of that. That's a, an interesting model. So if I lament about something twice, I'm going to change something. So I don't want to lament about it a third time. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I hope I can put that into practice. <laughs> that's, that's I hope a, you can too, because yeah. it, it's liberating in that way. Yeah. You know, you constantly feel, and I think for me that that was something that really was interesting too when I was in Europe. I felt free mm-hmm. in a way that I had never felt freedom. And then when I came. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Came back, I was, you know, I sort of came back, not on my own terms. I felt obligated to come back. And I promised myself like, all right, you're going to come back, but, um, you're not going to let go of your freedom. You're not going to like allow yourself to not like explicitly feel your independence in whatever you do. And so I, I feel like I've just like, when I think about it, maybe that's what's been the like common thread. I didn't know I wanted to be a social architect that sort of happened or it unfolded in a, in a natural way, but it's because I've always been saying like, all right, what is next? How, how is it that I'm going to constantly help other people realize the freedom that I feel all the time? That's a, that's a very interesting thing that drives you. That's the opposite of selfish, I'd say. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, it means I don't go to like my cousin's birthday parties, but yeah, I don't know. What's interesting to me is that I mean, I've spent a lot of my time in my career around crowds, particularly partying crowds and sometimes unruly, sometimes rioting crowds. I've been in riots and it's very, very, very frightening. Uh, And I've been involved in festivals that are terribly organised and dangerously organised. So tell me, what's it like when you had 3,000 people show up to an event that you thought there was going to be 200 for? Like, was there ever a thought that things would go pear-shaped? Was there any fights? Was like, was it? 
was there just like a feeling of no, no, this is all good and we're all here for the right reason because it had been built on the model of you bring someone that you think's awesome and they have to bring someone that they think's awesome. No one gets to bring their douchebag friend. You know, we never have. We do 168 events a year. That's um, a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> oh my God, it's insane. Um, I have never felt that way in, in any of our programs. I've never felt a sense of fear. I mean, now we have like a protocol for everything. I mean, we have a way that we handle things. We definitely have liability insurance yeah. for every single But I'm talking about that first program. night. But that first night, no, I didn't. It was like this, it was like, when I think about it, this like perfect kumbaya moment. I remember so distinctly there was this sunset. Like I had, it was like the first time I'd ever seen the sunset. It was like this fire orange. And I remember at one point, like the entire crowd went like subdued and everyone turned west. And we were all just like watching the sunset. I mean, it sounds like, I don't know. Um, it sounds like the final scene of a John Hughes film. That's what really, it sounds like. I mean, it's, it's like a big victory really, scene from an 80s movie. It was really bizarre, but there was no unruliness. There was never a moment when I thought, I mean, it was a pain in the ass because there weren't enough bathrooms, but there was not like an issue with people being out of control. Uh-huh. It's actually one of my, I mean, I have a, like a soft, I, it's hard. It's like choosing your favorite child to all of our programs. I love them all quite dearly, but I have a soft spot in my my heart for that one specifically because it is this sort of like love fest of like artists and musicians and yeah. it's kind of an obscure location. It's on this little island that's um, just east of the city out in the lake. And so you, you can't get there by car. You have to walk about like a half a mile to get there. And so the people that come like really want to be there, you know, they've made an investment in terms of like traveling. Yeah. And so everyone is so chill. There's like, there's always like the hula hoopers that sort of ascend from the prairie grass where you're like, how in the hell? Like, and you know what I mean? Everyone's just like so happy and chill. And I'm guessing that was not only a tipping point for you as a company where you're okay, we're going to have to go pro here, but a tipping point for the community where all those 3000 people told five people about what happened. They went, Oh Oh, dude, the next one is going to be dynamite. Huge. Yeah. We had a couple of those right after, right after the next, like suddenly we were amassing. We couldn't host, uh, we had to shift our programming pretty quickly and we had to diversify our programming as well because the regular format that we had of like, let's just turn up at a restaurant or a bar and have a happy hour was like 600 people would come. And there's, there's no bar in town that can sustain that. You know, you would absolutely deplete their resources and people would have a, kind of a bad time, you know what I mean? Because you're waiting in a queue to get a beer or whatever. And so a couple of things happened. One is suddenly we had all these people that were like, hey, I want to be involved in this. And I have an idea, like I want to teach this dance class or I want to like plant these community gardens or I want to start a running club. And we like really quickly said yes to everything and then like charged people with like, and you're going to be the new athletic director for Milwaukee, like in Milwaukee, go ahead for it, like right ahead. And so that I think helped um, funnel or diffuse some of the crowds because suddenly we had all of these offerings. People could like, they could come to the like, I would say established program. And what I mean by that is that it was like produced by one of the three of us, or they could easily like funnel into something else that was more like niche in terms of the content that was being presented. It sounds like the way you're describing it, it sounds like a live action Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it is. says like people make this weird group. I wanna, I wanna, you know, mm-hmm. do a thing about hula hooping. I wanna do a thing about running. You're like, great. 
this many people like click on like yeah. and they all go and do it but it's it's for real you actually go and do, do something and you're a part of an actual community yeah in a lot of ways i think what we're doing is a reaction to um the fact that the young people in general millennials don't like attend church and which specifically in this sort of community was like the apex of your socialization right your, your, your work life and your family life and your church life is where you were like socializing and so even with all of the connectivity that we have with our modern technology, people want to be face-to-face. -face. They want to have an interaction. And this was simply like we were holding a space for those interactions to happen and then letting like whatever unfolded unfold. We didn't have any agenda because we weren't being presented by the Chamber of Commerce. We don't, we weren't like some established nonprofit that had board members that had specific political interests. You know, we were just like three kids in the basement of this mall ready to, to do whatever we wanted to do next. I mean, that was what it was. I heard someone recently say, um, what is it that you want to do? And he said, I just want to make beautiful things with my friends. And I thought, oh, that's what we've been doing this whole time. Like this fearsome threesome, just sort of like running around the city saying, yeah, what, what can we do next? And then like, let's just do it. Let's not wait for permission. Let's just absolutely do it. At what point? Because you're, you know, you you're young. Mm -hmm. uh, you're all under thirty five at this point, mm -hmm. yeah. And when you started, you must all definitely under thirty. Yeah. At what point did, you know, the man, go? Hang on, there's something happening in this city that isn't us. You know, at what point did the establishment go? What are these? What's this? These fifty thousand strong group of people that are off doing wild things in the park on a Sunday. Yeah. How do how do we get a taste of that? Or how do we, you know, charge them for that? Or how do we tax that? Or how do we go and speak to them hoping they're going to vote for us next? Like right. at what point did you, you know, because that's normally when you know you've arrived, when that sort of thing starts to happen. So there is an old building in the center of our downtown, which was a, a mall in its heyday when urban malls were a functioning thing. And I it, think there was a period in the 80s where every, right, was like, every film was, like, was in the mall. Exactly. Yeah. It was like just one moment in yeah. like in 1986 when that worked. And then um, and then there was like a slow, slow, slow decline. And so the building that we're in um, was like many others across the country. It was at a 44% occupancy rate. And there was a, a, a visionary on staff there as well as um, an agency who was in an adjoining building who was really vested in the major thoroughfare that it rests on in our downtown um, and its revitalization, because as this mall had declined, all of the space around it had as well. And so um, her name is Julia Taylor and she works with the Greater Milwaukee Committee. And she would, I would say it was like our first member of the powers that be that saw um, that there was potential with this building and helped organize a program called Creativity Works Here, which was basically below market rent to like just increase the occupancy and the vibrancy of this building. And we had signed on, we were, I think we were the second person in the building. And then we were making all this noise about it. We were so excited. We were like hosting programs in it. And she saw that. And I mean, when I think about the first time we met with her, I don't even know what we pitched her. We definitely hadn't coined anything with social architecture. We had no like framework to describe what we were doing. It was this weird thing that we were like playing in community development and kind of some urban development, public art, and these social events. And, but we were none of those things and all of those things at once. And she um, she just, she must've saw it. I mean, she must've saw it instantly or saw our potential. Cause she said, 
she would help us kind of navigate. And she did. I mean, she was an incredible advocate for us from the beginning. Um, and we definitely made some like mistakes politically being really like novices to all of this. None of us had worked in the public sector in that way or knew that, you know, that sometimes you do have to be delicate. You have to like, at least be aware of what other people's viewpoints were. Um, I'm trying to think the other part where we really got the the man on board, which is funny now because, you know, we often get pigeonholed because we're young for simply being like a young professional organization, which is really not. I think if we were older when we had started this, we'd never have to like kind of like fight back that issue. You know, we, we often get critiqued as sort of like, there's like this generational push or pull that I don't really understand because I'm really cognizant of the fact that, yes, we were the ones that were like, yeah, I don't need to get paid a salary for the first year and a half I do this, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, but we, we worked with people in the local government, with our local corporations. We worked with the establishment all along the way. There was, there'd be no way we would be where we are if we had been this like isolated, like anarchistic entity. But, um, particularly with the local government, we kept asking, um, for these really obscure permits. I mean, we would go to them and say like, Okay, so you know how um, our largest bridge in the city has been under construction for the last year and it's really like depleted the resources of the local businesses on either side because people can't get across. How about before we open that and then just, you know, the barricades go up and people can just make a left turn as they they were. How about we throw a huge party on the bridge? It's like a big celebration that like finally our downtown is reopened. And I remember we were working with the permit office at the mayor at the city hall and they were like, so is it like a parade? And we're like, well, it's no, it's not a parade because we're not going to like be marching around. Is it like a, like, a, is it a f festival? Like th there was no classification for bridge party amongst all the permitting that was in our, <laughs> like there was, they were like, uh, all right. And we've actually done that at quite a few times the local municipality, like have to say like, all right, here's the idea. I know you don't have- We would put a slip and slide exactly. down East Milwaukee Avenue. Will you please work with us to like create the legalese needed to give us permission to actually do this? <laughs> and they've been like quite patient with us yeah. uh, along the way. But so now, now you're at a point where, you know, you were a bunch of upset kids, you know, putting on a party with not enough portaloos on an island. Uh -huh. And now you're at the point where you and the mayor are, BFFs. So I will say yes, although we don't ever take a political stance on anything, which has been a really hard because like, that, that was my you know line to toe. That's where I want to talk about next. You know, so um, we play with the establishment, but we can't actually. And, and this is where, in a lot of ways, I feel like a media entity. Like we try to stay unbiased. What I hope is that we can create a platform for people to have their awareness increased about whatever the issues are, but to not actually take a stance or anything, mm. which is hard with a small organization because we're all super liberal. I mean, I'm like really, really liberal. And so it's hard not to like have a favorance for the like liberal stance on things or the way that we present content. We spend a lot of time thinking about like how things go out through the wires. I just want to point out in Australia, the Liberal Party is actually the extremely conservative party. Uh, so, so it's the opposite of that. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just, exactly. I just, I just want to point that out for my Australian um, uh, listeners. And we definitely are lobbied. I mean, we get lobbied all the time for different things. And it's... It's 160,000 people, 160,000 sets of ears. 
and people who vote. That's a lot of people. It's you a have lot influence of over. So that's what I'm asking. You know, people must want to have a taste of that. Well, and I think that's probably why we've had such great reception with the current administration is because they see the value of that. It's very easy for us to say, you know, would you mind participating in this? You know what I mean? Like, so at this last year at that same Urban Alley Beach party, um, we said, the, told the mayor, like, we want you to kick it off this year. We want you to smash a pineapple is like the launch of the event. And there was this moment where I was watching him do it. And I thought, this is so bizarre. And I can't believe that he's like agreed to come down here. <laughs> it's the launch of this event that he's with the sledgehammer and a, a pineapple. Cause the whole thing is Island themed. Right. And so, and he like a hundred percent participates in the whole like charade, which I feel like so grateful for, like, Thank you for like seeing our value and then like actually like stepping up to on like, Lake Michigan where it was like minus 25 right. <laughs> Fahrenheit in the winter time. So the idea of having a Hawaiian kind of. Oh yeah. It, it absolutely makes no sense. I mean. <laughs> Cause it gets super cold here. It gets like the, the winter you've had has just been. A brutal. It's been awful. Horrendous. Right. right. It's absolutely horrendous here in terms of the weather, but. So when, so because in Australia and certainly in LA, it's just like, oh, it's hot and sunny again. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that you have these these times of the year where you can celebrate being outdoors. And, oh, yeah. And the city lights up, yeah. right? There's like this this tangible energy in the air. You can feel like the vibration yeah. of the population become I mean, awakened. The winter in, in, in my country is like, it's, it's, it's a bit cold. Yeah. And then in the summer, it's, well, it's, it's hot. It's really hot. But in the winter, it's like, nah, it's kind of cold. Yeah. Not like here where I will die if I'm out, like die if I'm outside in anything less than Arctic shell for more oh, than Oh, yeah. Two you need to have the boots and multiple yeah. layers. And everywhere you go, you're like constantly shedding things and trying not to. I lose like six pairs of gloves every winter because it's, you're like constantly taking things off as soon as you get into the house. So let's talk about the, you know, what it is because it's, you know, you th- you hear about things like that happened certainly in, in in the sixties, you know, in the seventies when the you know the the what's the internal one, the CIA is the internal one, uh, got very very worried about big political organizations, big organizations. So you've got one hundred and sixty thousand people in a city of a million mm-hmm. uh, at the click of an email away. You know, do, do people get worried that you're going to use that for something other than let's have a great time and be happiness? Have you, or have you just been like, you know what? I haven't seen people get worried. I mean, maybe people worry about it. Maybe that's why people like play nice with us. You know what I mean? That they feel like, but most of the people, I, what I mostly come into is that, um, this sense of like, you're not doing enough. And I don't know if that's like my own like issues with enoughness that I like am super sensitive to it, but we have tons of people. I mean, that's really the, the critique that we read from the other media outlets of the stuff that we do, because we don't, we're not a fan favorite for every single entity. There are definitely people who love to like try to derail what it is we're doing in our, our brand voice is that of like a wet Labrador. Like it's so happy. It's just like, you know what I mean? And that, that, that is not necessarily well received. So but- for folks who, who don't know the, a brand voice, that's a, like, it's a kind of marketing speak. Well, if we had a metaphor right. for our entire communication right. and what it is when you look at anything that represents our company, it feels like a Labrador holding a stick, jumping straight out of the ocean. Like, what are we going to do now? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We own that. I mean, it's incredibly informal. It's meant to be playful. It's meant to make you feel like come have the best night of your life with us. And that's not always, um, well, is, is well received. Um, but the, the main thing that I've seen is in terms of pushback is not like, Oh, are you going to use it for evil? It's you have a responsibility and now you need to also take on this issue. Uh, 
um, because this issue is really important too. And and for the most part, I, I regularly agree with that critique, but it's a matter of capacity. I mean, we're a team of seven people running 168 programs a year. Um, and it's not, I mean, we just don't have yet, we don't have, I'm going to put an asterisk on it, we don't have yet the capacity to champion every single issue that comes about. Um, that is to say, it's been interesting because, you know, in a lot of ways we've been, there's a new term that's sort of nationally being experimented with foundations and other people who do things in the same vein as this called placemaking, which is essentially like the creation of a space. You take a space and you turn it into a place or into a destination. In a lot of ways, that's what we've been doing. Unlike a, if you look at a scale of like the most temporary to the most permanent, and a lot, we started with the really temporal like experimentation. It's like, we're going to create a sense of place together as a collective, all 150 of us for this next two hours. And then we sort of diverted into more physical things. Like we're going to change this empty lot into a park, which has like physical, tangible elements to it. There's more of a sense of permanence. And what I see is like our next evolution is engaging this population to be more proactive in terms of policy, always staying very neutral. But I think that's critical. I mean, and I saw, I see the life cycle of this going from the most temporary to the most permanent in terms of how change can be made on this spectrum. And we're not, we're not there yet. To, I mean, to be really frank, like we've just, we have taken a, we've used this platform to elevate specific issues or specific sites that need galvanization in terms of like eyes, like, Hey, you need to pay attention to this because this is important and it's going to change your life tomorrow. Um, but that would be where I would see it going next. And I, I know in my heart that that's where it's going to be the hardest in terms of people saying like, you're misusing this population. There will be a lot of critique around the presentation of the issues that are brought to hand, but I'm, I'm up for it. I'm up for the challenge knowing that like, if we want this to be a place where everyone feels like they can be a part of it or they belong, it means that like that kind of discourse is necessary and that we have to kind of the weather the storm of whatever the like discourse ends up taking, you know what I mean? Is this, do you feel that what you're doing, this social architecture that you're doing, do you feel like this is kind of the future of, um, dare I say, not necessarily political allegiance, but community allegiance uh, in that, uh, you know, in this, particularly in this country, it's like you're red or you're blue, you're you're right or you're left. That's it. But more and more, you know, I get this kind of feeling that, and we were, you know, we were talking about this at lunch, as people can kind of, um, if they choose, kind of live in this echo chamber of I only follow the Twitter people I want to follow. I only listen to people what's on Facebook. The news sites I view have an algorithm that only shoot me stories like the ones I've been looking at. So I never see another point of view yet. What you're doing is, is kind of really mobilizing a community to get out and bump, you know, into each other and like have these, um, what does Tony Shea call them? Um, collisions, collisions, um, you know, with each other. And, and it's something that political parties don't seem to do. They don't seem they don't to want you. They want you to eat the sound bite they're going to give them. Right? Yeah. Right. It's much easier do I think that this is the way of the future? I think this is the only way that you can actually have a democracy. I mean, I don't know how else you can be. I mean, it feels so innate and so natural to me. The All you're doing, doing is getting people out of the house and meeting each other. Right. 
And it seems like it's the most obvious thing in the world to do, but we get to live these lives where we stare, we have this entire world around us, but we stare at this three inch by five inch screen all damn day, mm-hmm. double tapping photos of places we're not. Right. Exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, I would, I would hope that this framework can be used in other cities in other places too. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think things like this are happening, particularly in the Midwest. I've been watching what's happening in these other post-industrial cities where people are sort of trying to find what their new identity maybe. Um, and there is sort of this, like, let's get back into the streets. Let's like, we have a big crowd of people that are interested in doing something. So let's like move. I see this happening in other places. Um, the difficulty is that you have to be true to it all the time. I mean, open sourced ideas means that everyone has a voice and it's hard that, that it's hard to like placate when I mean, I have ideas, like I have, I have strategies I'd like to implement and I have to know that like, I'm not going to always have the best idea, that it's not always, it can't always, it might come through me. I might hold the space for it, but it, it's not always going to be mine. And so that's like something that, um, I have personally like struggled with in the last couple of years, but it's also something that I, I find I do a lot of handholding with, especially with the establishment. Like, okay, so we're going to let everyone have a say in this. I know that's going to make you really uncomfortable, but I promise you that in the end, you won't need to do any of the the buy-in stuff that you have to like fabricate, like let's get everyone on board because actually everyone will already be on board. Whatever the end output is actually going to have all of the support you need, both like monetarily as well as um, like emotionally within the community because everyone will have participated in the process and being like process-based in that way is very um, foreign for a lot of the, the old guard because it's just not how it's done. You don't just, you don't just let everyone have a vote. I mean, what, what would happen then? <laughs> <laughs> so what have you, I mean, I know you've got to go because you've got another event tonight because it's, you know, one of the 168 events you do every year, which is, <laughs> is bonkers. What, and, and I'd like to get out on this. It might take us a few minutes to talk about it, but I think it's very important. I'm not in a hurry. No, 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 that's, yeah. no, no, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I was, I'm, I, you know, I know I said this yesterday at my my, my talk at, at your conference. As I was born lucky, I was born white, I was born middle class, and I was born male. I hit the damn jackpot. You did the the, the queen of the. You Nile. said that, and I thought, yeah, he did. I did. Damn I it. really did. Yeah. I really, you know, and um, so what's it like, and what have you learned, and what would you say to women who want to do what you're kind of doing? Because you you know you already outnumbered two to one in your own I know core of your organization right. What have you learned about what it is to remain woman, remain feminine, have that feminine energy, yet still do these things that require such alpha energy to not necessarily kick down doors, but you know say to old white men in power, hey, mm-hmm. guess this is happening right. You know, it's been that, that in the last year has been a really interesting journey for me because I have always, I mean, I've just told you my story. I've always really worked for myself. I never really had an establishment that I like ascribe to. Um, and it's isolating. I mean, I sit in most of my day either because I'm in the office and I'm with the boys, um, or I'm in a meeting with some official or some leader and I'm not only the youngest person in the room, but I'm, I'm usually the only female too. And I, I feel really like, okay with being the youngest. Cause I know that's going to change 
and I hope that it's soon. I hope that there's someone coming up right behind me that is, has even brighter, fresher ideas. Um, but I don't know how quickly it's going to be that I'm the only woman. There is still a part of the culture here that really, um, participates in that like traditional role of what a woman is and what she's supposed to be. And I find, um, particularly with our volunteers, this has happened to me many times in the last five years where someone is really involved, really invested, and then they meet someone, they get engaged or whatever. And they feel the need actually to, to write me a note and say, I've had a fabulous time. I think what you're doing is incredibly important, but I can't participate anymore because now I'm going to be married. And it's been such a like, like really strange thing for me because I'm, I'm naturally a very independent person. And so despite whatever my relationships may be, um, I've always sort of like led my own charge. I've never thought like, Oh, I'm going to have a relationship and now everything else is going to like shut down, um, in my life. And in a lot of ways that is still sort of like an undercurrent here. And I do end up, um, sometimes I think it helps, right? Cause I'm the only one, woman in the room. So if I end up speaking up, it means that everyone pays attention. And I'm, I'm keenly aware of that. I, I won't say that I don't participate in that sort of game in some way. Um, but I feel alone a lot, really a lot. Um, and I'm kind of sick of it. Like it's something I, I personally want to work on. I've, I have noticed, like I said, I found myself lamenting more than twice about this. Um, and so I, I have found a slew of mentors who are like very in, in the establishment have made a, th their way, um, really powerful women that I've connected with. Um, but I want to change that. I don't, it's a heavy burden to have to represent 166,000 people, but it's to know that I also have to represent all of the women. For some reason, that part is actually heavier knowing that like, you know, the men are going to find their way. They just the are. The world is designed for men, right. it's white right. men. They're going to end so up, they're going to be okay. They're going to end up like networking in the saunas the way that they do brokering deals that I will, I will never participate in. Yeah. Just because of on the golf courses and all that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's where it happens. Yeah. But that I have to advocate for this whole population of people who who have on occasion even told me, Yeah, I just don't want to do this anymore. Good luck with that. Is it's hard. It's yeah. really hard. And I feel um scared a lot that I'm gonna like misstep with that or that I'm not gonna do it justice. And so I, I would like to, I mean, that's something that I would like to work on just in general, empowering more women in this community to be champions. How is it to, because I used to see my ex-wife do this a lot. She would have to dress down and put on the alpha male boots when she, you know, I'm not saying that metaphorically, she always left her house in fabulous shoes. What I'm saying is like, so she would have to put on the alpha male kind of cloak Mm -hmm. when she went into these rooms and play boy, play a boy to get what she needed in the meeting. Mm -hmm. Because if she was as a woman or as feminine and like yourself, beautiful woman, people just wouldn't take her seriously. I don't think I've ever done that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I definitely, I, I, I am the heavy, like when it comes to like our sales cycle, I have no problem like being the closer which actually is, I think, quite advantageous because I don't think they're expecting me to come in with the ask. Um, and so that like kind of takes them off guard. It maybe even makes them say yes more quickly. <laughs> uh, but I, I never had, I always have been really feminine. 
I, I really do own that. I don't feel like I need to be a boy. I mean, I definitely swear too much. And I will, I'll say that's because I like, you know, work and live with these two little piglets. <laughs> kind of, right? Just in general, I think I have like an openness that is maybe more based on like the male camaraderie that I am exposed to on a day-to-day basis. But I feel like it's okay for me to be a woman. I don't dress like a man. I don't try to be hard. If anything, and that's been something I've been trying to work with the, the women that I know that I, I really love and respect. And the reason that I love and respect them is because for me, they're still feminine. You know what I mean? They've ascended to this role of power and yet they're in a dress and they are gracious. And that's really what it is. It's the grace that I see. Like you have, you maintain this like openness and the warmth and this inclusivity that I think really only women have that like natural maternal, like we have to think about everyone that's involved. We can't simply think about what we want which is why I think like more women need to be involved in this whole process because the world would be much better. It's half the population of the planet. Right. You'd imagine that half the population of leadership would also be women. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's not really hard to ask. Uh, so then how is it when you are faced with kind of old guard views of women and, and you get, you know, you hear about it, you know, people getting talked down to in public or, you know, someone. I just told you I was referred to as Blondie <laughs> in a public meeting just recently in front of 400 people. Yeah, it's hard, but um, I guess I sort of expect it in some ways now, and so I just like let it kind of roll off of me. Like I don't, I don't feel personally wounded by it. I get annoyed. Like, okay, can we get back to the focus? Like, yes, all right, I'm a woman. I have a vagina. I'm in a dress. Can we move on? Like, we're all here now to like talk about what we need to talk about. Can we? stay focused. Um, and in that way I can be like more assertive, but I don't know that that's like masculine. No, it's not. It's not. What do you say? Like when you see the younger, the, the younger women that you work with and certainly the younger volunteers, do you, uh, do you have, you know, old people listening, you know, wondering, this is, sounds like a really interesting thing to do in my community. What would you say to those women? That, what I really care about is that you find that you're living your life's purpose and not everyone's life purpose is community development. Like I, un- I understand that. Like, this is really my, I feel like I'm in alignment with what it is I want to do. And I don't expect everyone to have the same desires. Um, but that in whatever you do, you don't feel like you need to compromise. You don't have to put your career on hold. You don't have to put your um, desires on hold for your relationship you can still be a whole person. And I would say that's probably why we have such an issue with divorce in general is that there's been this like unspoken rule that like you need to put your own desires on the back burner. And then, you know, you can't do that. It's not sustainable because you you end up like either hating yourself or hating the person you're with and the whole thing like crumbles. I don't know. I would say to do this exactly what I say. Like, don't let yourself lament more than twice. To make yourself put your own happiness first, whatever that means for you. Be insatiable is really what I I ascribe to. Like, I own your insatiability. That like things are constantly supposed to be in motion. They're constantly supposed to be changing, and be like totally okay with the impermanence. It's hard. It's not like it's not. It's not. It doesn't mean that you can't give up things or that you're not going to be scared, but. You have to, you have to. What would you say to people who are thinking of doing something similar in their town? People have listened to this and gone, you know what? 
I feel the same way, whether I live in, you know, maybe, a, you know, a, a town outside of a major city, for example, in Brisbane, it would be uh, like Toowoomba or Rockhampton or Newcastle or Moree or, you know, one of these kind of smaller towns outside of the metropolis. People were like, I want to do something like this. What would, what would you say to do? Um, just do it. Yeah, I would say the easiest thing is to just like pick us a place you want to focus on. And what you'll find is that other people are interested in it too. Like I think most people think like, oh, I'm the only one that really cares. But if you like go out of your shell and sort of like start to like, really all we've done is kind of beat the drum, right? And then it like gets louder and louder and louder. Feel, find someone else who wants to do it because there's always going to be at least 10 people, right? That like are interested in what you're doing. And probably the people that they know would be interested as well. I don't know. It's hard. How do you like galvanize a movement? I don't know. You just do. You do because you find other people that are, that are willing to be open. But I think that's everywhere. Like everyone wants to feel like they belong. That's like an innate thing that that's a human thing. That's why we live in communities, right? We don't live like all isolated. We want to be with other people. Well, what I say to other people is just create a sense of belonging. And that requires a, a level of openness and, and uh, receptivity or an accepting that is maybe foreign, but totally worth it. I, I have to agree, agree with you, in a, you know, on the idea that a lot of people think the same. And I've come to realize this more and more and more and more. As, as much as giant news media organizations would like us to believe that it's us and them, even inside our own communities. It's mm -hmm. not just like us and Iran or us right. and whoever or us and that race or right. us and that class. And that's a convenient narrative, right? It's very succinct. It, it, and it is. It's it makes nice. people click on right. links. Exactly. It makes people watch TV because it's fear. Mm -hmm. It's you're in danger because of this thing. If you take the big look, if you zoom out, if you go and sit on the International Space Station and look down, the actual giant glob in the middle of the bell curve, we actually think quite alike as a, as a society. We lean a little bit politically one way or the other, but as a general rule, the moral core of our society is these things aren't good and these things are. We'd like to live in a place where these things exist and we'd like to live in a place where these things don't exist. And that it's, you'd be surprised how many people think alike in our society, even me who thinks really differently to many other people, certainly around what I eat and, and you know, what I believe is, is right. Like I've been surprised like, Oh wow. You think about that too. That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, I think the thing that people forget when they get caught up in the, the infighting that happens when it's us against them is that everyone's shouting because we all care. Like if you didn't care, you would like change the channel. Right. And just like sit on your couch or whatever. And so for me, it's like remembering to stay out of the uh, like slurry, to not take it personally, to not to realize like, oh, shit, I just started this dialogue. Like what's going to happen here? It's not about me personally. I should I celebrate the fact that people care enough to get upset and to have a dialogue. And that in the end, like it's going to be fine, whatever it is, like it doesn't really matter. It doesn't. None of it really matters. Like it's going to be all right. And so I feel like I don't have any like. Um, or I, I have come to not have any fear over that. Like I actually look at it and think, oh, that's really sweet that you all care this much. I wish we could talk like adults. There wasn't like constant like bickering or this like ego mashing, but. It didn't call me blondie. Right. <laughs> but I sure am happy that we're all here tonight. Isn't this lovely? <laughs> I think the world's going to be an okay place if people like you end up running it, Angela. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. 
certainly uh, far less frightening and far less disenchanted um, because you do get that feeling here in America that your vote really doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were talking at dinner the other night about that article that came out from a Princeton University study that America is an oligarchy. I mean, shit. It's kind of frightening. Mm-hmm. You know, but if there's, if there's more people like you in this world, uh, we might just get through the next 50 years okay. <laughs> That's a little hyperbolic, I think, but I, I, I agree. I hope that people can live without fear and to know that like, we're all, we we are really all one. And if you can hold that in your heart, then it doesn't matter that you don't want a streetcar or someone else does like the like fighting that happens around the smallest little issues. It's actually, it's all right. It's not going to change you as a person. You're going to be fine. (laughs) so awesome thanks for having me in your living in your kitchen not a worry thanks for the cup of tea absolutely thank Thank you you. that is Angela Damiani you can follow her on Twitter at Angela underscore MKE let her know that you heard her here if there's anything that she said that resonates with you please let her know you heard her here and if there's if you feel if it's in your heart share share that you heard this show let people know and this week particularly um, let people know that this shows up on the ABC if they don't know how to use podcasts. What's a podcast? It's radio on your phone. I've already got radio. Yes, listen to it. 9.30 every night this week in Australia, um, in Brisbane 612, Sydney 702, Melbourne 774, Canberra 666, the station of the beast, Adelaide 774, 720 in Perth, um, and 55 other radio stations around Australia so yeah that's exciting on the ABC okie dokie then go visit Milwaukee if you're coming through America some really interesting stuff happening there and tell Angela hi if you see her she's bloody lovely alright it's Saturday night in LA um, I'm going to take in some Netflix no, I'm going to go to bed <laughs> thank you so much for being here Uh, If it's your first time, congratulations, you made it through. I'll talk to you next week. Be kind, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.